My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome What The Finance to another episode of the What The Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what is happening in the world of finance, investing and markets. So on today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome David Wu, who's a former top-ranked Wall Street strategist, IMF economist and founder of Unbound, uh, which is a global forum devoted to the promotion of fact-based debates about markets, politics and economics. So David, thanks for joining the podcast today. No, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, you know, my first question is you're someone who obviously has a plethora of experience as some of the largest institutions in the world, and you're known for bold and out of consensus calls within global macro. Uh, so can you maybe talk the listeners through what is your thought process behind some of your predictions and, you know, where does it all begin? And I guess, how does it get to the point where you're happy to put a position on? Yeah, I think, you know, listen, I mean, if you know, the thought process is a fairly eclectic thought process, which reflects sort of the background, you know, um, that I come from, you know, I've got a PhD in economics from Columbia University. So I'm a trained, you know, economist when it comes to international finance, open economy macro, got a very strong theoretical background there. I started my career, as you said, at the International Monetary Fund. So I spent five years there. I worked on the Russia crisis. I worked at the, uh, the Asian crisis, I worked in Eastern Europe. So from that point of view, I actually have, you know, hands-on experience working in countries alongside policymakers, understanding what they're trying to achieve and trying to help them how to achieve. Because by the way, this is actually very important because so much of what we try to do in the markets is simply trying to predict what policymakers are going to do next. What is the Fed going to do? What is, you know, this trust going to do? And so on and so forth. So understanding the objective function is hugely important. And understanding the consultation process around decision making is hugely important. That's another experience that I have. And in the last 20 years, I've been working on Wall Street, you know, until I recently stepped aside. And then I, you know, I started in foreign exchange. And um, I started actually in merchant markets, by the way. My first job was at Citibank in London, you know, covering South Africa, by the way. That was my first assignment, you know, coming out of the IMF. And it was fascinating, you know, but so I started doing merchant markets and then I started to run foreign exchange research and then I took on rates and I took on emerging markets. So basically, you know, by the time I finished my career, I was basically, I, you know, I managed a top ranked macro strategy team. But this is where it gets very interesting because I would say that the most difficult transition for me, you know, throughout my entire career was the transition to markets. You know, going from academia to public policy was relatively easy. But going from economics, okay, public policy to markets was very, very difficult because, you know, one thing is to really understand, you know, the theory, the policy making in the economics. Another thing is to be able to translate into markets. What does that mean? People don't want you to tell them, like, so what happened yesterday? What happened last week? People want to know, like, okay, fine, given what you think about the world right now. So what is the best prey to put on? And I think from that point of view, being able to look beyond, and I think from that point of view, I mean, I, I think I consider myself very fortunate because I think, you know, I've got, I've got, I, I think I've got, you know, luckily, I mean, it's not that I even tried because, you know, when I was your age, I wanted to become a filmmaker. You know, I, you know, I want to become a novelist. In fact, I've written a couple of novels. But the point here is that my experience, in some sense, lent 
lend themselves very well to become who I was because like I understood, you know, I, I was born in the U- U.S. I grew up in Asia. You know, I, you know, educated in the U.S. And I spent most of my working career actually in Europe. So I understand the U.S. very well. I understand Europe very well. I understand China very well. I don't think there are many people in the world. You know, maybe there are going to be, some, there are definitely people who understand China, but in Niger, well, Europe more than me. But I don't think anybody understands Europe, U.S., and China, and the Middle East as well as I do. Okay. On top of that, given my background in foreign exchange, you know, as you know, foreign exchange by definition, okay, is basically a global game, right? I mean, my team covers something like 125 countries. I mean, we were the number one ranked team for that. But you know what? You know, so from that point of view, like, you know, so I always had a sort of very global perspective of where I think about things, you know, and I think all that together in the experience, I think has made me who I am. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm always right, but it probably means that I'm ahead of the market. Like, if you look at what's been going on this week and last week in the market, is it was a total joke in my view. It shows me that the market has completely lost the plot. It shows me the market has no idea what it was doing until today. And then, wham. But, but the point here is that while I may be proved right over time, sometimes it takes a while. I mean, sometimes, you know, like, you know, I have to really put my neck down on the line and then, you know, in the hope that, you know what, the market is going to be proved wrong and I'm going to be proved right. But it's always a struggle because sometimes, you know, it's much better to think one day ahead of the market as opposed to thinking three months ahead of the market. Okay. And I'm very often three months ahead of the market. And, and, and that serves me well with big institutional investors, but on a day-to-day basis, I'm not much of a good day-to-day trader. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Cause a lot of the times that's a challenge. It's like, you can have these ideas and you can be right, but it's actually taking advantage of, you know, how the market moves. Cause it doesn't always move how we think it's going to move. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what happened the last uh, week, right. I mean, think about this. I mean, last week, for example, was very interesting. Right. You know, we had gone through like rates had backed up in the previous three weeks. You know, stocks had gone down. You know, you know, Russia literally had, you know, Europe's basically, uh, you know, basically, you know, against the wall when it comes to the energy blackmail. Right. I mean, I was sure that the stock market was going to basically continue to tumble. Okay. Now, of course, however, you know, contrary to my expectation, the market basically rallied like mad. And I think there were two main reasons why the stock market rallied up, even though rates were actually still going up last week. I mean, think about this ECB surprised the market by hiking 75 basis points. You know, that was certainly not in the price because after the ECB hike, two year, two year rates basically in Europe and the US both back up 20 basis points. So it was not like all of a sudden policymakers had thrown a lifeline to the market telling them that we're about to pivot, nothing like that. So you see, so what happened last week in the market? Like the stock market went through the roof last week. Okay, credit spreads came in. Why? I think the explanation is pretty obvious because by the second half of last week, everybody's saying, oh, wow, you know, listen, Ukraine is destroying, you know, the Russian forces, you know, in Eastern Ukraine, that, you know, this is, uh, this basically spells the end of the war because Putin very soon is going to be defeated. He's going to be crawling back to Moscow. Okay. And at the same time, the market, decided that, you know what, US CPI number is going to come in basically lower than expected, that we're going to see more evidence that basically US inflation has peaked. 
So these were the two, I mean, in fact, just before the CPI number, we know that people basically bought something like $2.6 billion QQQ. Okay, presumably betting that we were going to have another market-friendly CPI number. But I mean, I was basically making the case already Sunday in my video podcast, my blogger, that this is absolutely insane, it made no sense at all. Because to me, the fact that Ukraine scored a victory against Russia last week, in fact, if anything, makes me much more pessimistic. Because what it shows me is that Putin now may have no other choice but to resort to even more extreme responses. That there is nothing more dangerous than a desperate man. Okay, that now if you thought that he was going to basically apply the energy lever hard, now he's going to go absolutely nuclear. Okay, and I also thought, you know, you know, you could watch him, you come and subscribe to my blog. You'll know that last week I was making a strong case that CPI is going to surprise the upside because of the service, core services inflation, which I thought that last month's basically number was dragged down by airfare dropping 7.8%. There was no chance that was going to happen again. So I said that course, court services inflation was going to rebound to about 0.5%. Guess what? We're at 0.6%. Okay. Today. So I could have told you, okay, already last week that this was going to end very poorly like it did today. But you know what? It doesn't mean that you might have lost some money on the way before you got billed out. <laughs> but so from that point of view, but nevertheless, the way I think about this is that the market right now, you know, forget about Wall Street. I mean, the average age of a Wall Street trader is probably 35. So these guys have only seen one cycle, two cycles. They've never seen inflation. They've never seen war. Okay. People like yourself, all the millennials who've been trading the market, forget it. They don't know anything, right? Basically, you know, they're in their 20s. They, they've just seen, they've been trading the last three, four years. They say, well, this is easy. Just basically buy every time you have a sell-off. So from that point of view, I kind of feel like I'm fighting, constantly fighting a market that just doesn't know what he's doing. Now, of course, this is why, you know, institutional investors want to talk to me because, you know what, you know, in some sense, like, you know, the perspective I can bring to the table, I think is one that very few people have it these days. And, and, and what I want to do, like, you know, the reason why I left Wall Street was because, you know, to launch my own thing, I've got my own YouTube channel, David Wu Unbound, is because I feel sorry that Main Street is so often so disconnected, but from what actually is going on, I want to basically help make everybody smart. Because at least smarter. <laughs> and I think this is very important. And I think the last week, again, I mean, I, I'm just sort of like, to me, what happened today is so obvious. To think that NASA was going to be down 4% today, Okay, on the back of a CPI number that was somewhat stronger than expected, just tells you the market got it completely wrong. That the market placed huge bets on the other on the other way. That's the only explanation. The price action today. Okay. How have you seen the market change over your career? Do you think it's just become so much more reactive and it's so much, as you said, there's so many people going long because they haven't seen anything else. Is that what you're seeing? They're not sort of pricing in the potential catastrophic events around the world or what's your I opinion? think the market has been you know evolving okay for the last 10 years I mean clearly the last 10 years you know I would say the markets have changed a lot in one fundamental sense which is that first of all you know I mean you know you know we haven't you know let's put it this way I'm a I, I, I would be you know what people call a global macro guy Right? That's what I do for a living, right? You know, a global macro. 
right? So a global macro guy basically, you know, loves inflation, loves business cycles, loves basically, uh, you know, you know, basically uh, volatility, okay? And uh, loves basically, uh, you know, basically when countries diverge, okay, as opposed to converge. Now, what's happened in the last 10 years is that because inflation, okay, sort of disappeared, okay, after the, uh, the 2008, you know, Great Recession, it took a, was a very, very slow, gradual recovery, you know, in the global economy. As a result, inflation was very lackluster. As a result, you know what? You know, the only economics you needed to know for most of the last 10 years was basically quantitative easing, okay? So, you know, because, you know, if you understood that inflation was going to stay low and that quantitative easing was going to become, you know, essentially the effect of life, then you forget about it. Just close your eyes and buy whatever risky assets there are out there. And that's it. You don't need to do any global macro analysis, okay? And that's why the last 10 years, to a great extent, global macro people like me, all of them just went out of business, <laughs> right? I mean, like, you know, there are very few global macro hedge funds that didn't close down actually in the last 10 years. I mean, think about this, right? I mean, we can name names, but I won't do that, you know, here. But let's just say that some of the biggest names in global macro either closed down, either basically folded, would basically turn into a family office, okay? Now, at the same time, something else is going on which is that because we've been in this kind of liquidity-driven kind of market, it became increasingly difficult for you know, money managers to achieve any kind of alpha. For one thing, there's a lot of base. Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, there is a lot of, um, because you know what? <laughs> if, this, if we're in a liquidity-driven environment, you know, all, you know, basically rising tides with all boats. It didn't really matter whether you are a value-oriented guy or whatever. You just buy, you know, the best investment would have been to buy the riskiest investment. That's it. You don't have to even think about anything else. This is why, like, money managers lost the plot. I mean, not that they lost the plot, that whatever skills, okay, that bring to the table in terms of, okay, searching for value, doing the analysis, all that became motion. Okay. So they started to underperform their benchmarks. As a result, you know, retail investors say, well, why would I basically pay somebody 2% a year to basically underperform the benchmark? Why don't I just basically buy an ETF? So what happened was that you saw this massive migration out of passive, you know, actively managed vehicles to uh, passive vehicles like ETFs. Now, what happened with that is that as money came out of active to passive, that means active guys started to underperform even more, okay? Because when things are going to passive, like when you buy an XMP index, you know, it didn't matter whether it's good company, bad company, like, you know, your money went proportionally to all of them, <laughs> driving all of them up, actually. So as a result, like, you know, if you are a value investor, you got killed. If you are long short value, you got killed. So all that was left was momentum. <laughs> Like momentum is what, you know, so, so not point of view, every millennial idiot who's never studied economics or nothing. This doesn't know anything at all. Momentum, everybody understands momentum, right? You just basically learn a few trend following thing. And, you know, as long as the ADX index is, a, is above 25, as long as above the 20 day moving hour, 50 moving hour, yeah, that's it. That's what you need to know. So you get into it basically. So we've, in that sense, we've gone a very long way. And I think from that point of view, I think this is why, but thank God, I think that's over. 
I think we're now going to be going to a very treacherous time. I actually think that in my old age, I'm about to basically come back in a very big way to the extent that I think everything I know that I've learned the last 20 years is going to serve me well. And all the millennials, unless they learn quickly what they're doing, they're going to be blown out of water. Okay. Because the world is changing. The world is going back to what it used to be. And what it used to be is not very nice. It doesn't make it easy to invest. Yeah, it definitely looks like that. So, you know, you've mentioned a few different trends occurring, obviously Russia, Ukraine, inflation. In terms of your own predictions, what are the ones that you have the most conviction on that are going to occur in your time frame? I think for me, a major thing, a big focus for me is the geopolitical, you know, clash between the West and you can call it the East, you can call it whatever. I mean, I mean, there is no doubt for me, this is not about Russia. It's not about Russia versus Ukraine. This is about the U.S. versus China, okay? My view is that, you know, U.S. provoke Russia into invading Ukraine, okay? Because the way that the U.S. was going about, you know, essentially the, you know, pushing for EU, you know, NATO enlargement, the way the U.S. walked away from the ABM treaty, the INF treaty, it was very clear that Russia was left with no choice. When you had U.S. basically missile launchers, you know, in Romania and now in Poland, that could basically fire nuclear missiles to hit, you know, Moscow in five minutes. Guess what? Putin doesn't have much of a choice. The fact that newspapers don't talk about that, that's the newspaper's problem. You know, I mean, so you have, to, you have to know a little bit about history to understand why this thing is so important. Because, you know, that in itself is very important to understand. This is not about, oh, well, a dictator decided to basically, like, take over the neighborhood. Like, you know, the truth could not... Before this cannot, this, 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 what, what is taken generally for granted cannot be further from the truth. Now, once you realize that, you realize that while well, the US basically views China and Russia together as major threat to the US hegemony, that under Trump, you know, Trump did everything to drive a big wedge between China and Russia. Okay, this is why, like, Trump basically, whenever he, talked about Xi Jinping. He said, well, the guy's a great man. He's my best friend. Every time Trump talks about, you know, Putin, he'll say, well, he's my best friend. He's a great man. Because Trump understood the danger to the U.S. when China and Russia got together. Okay. Biden, on the other hand, did everything he could from day one to bring the two together. In fact, they just basically, uh, he's been presiding their shutdown wedding, if you like. Now, I think part of it is because I think some of the neocons, the hawks in Washington be saying, you know what, you know, the, the, the clash between U.S. And, 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 and China is inevitable. Let's start by taking out its basically junior partner. And I think that's what the Ukraine-Russia war is about. Now, it's going to be very interesting because this week, as you know, that Xi Jinping and Putin are going to be meeting. What do you think basically Xi Jinping and Putin are going to talk about? Well, think about this, right? I mean, China in the last six months has been very careful not to violate the U.S., you know, basically sanctions against, you know, Russia, right? I mean, you know, China's been buying oil and gas from Russia, but that's not a violation of any sanctions, right? But China has been very careful not to violate U.S. sanctions in terms of technology export to Russia and so on and so forth. This is why if you look at actually Russian imports from China, it's actually down from basically uh, relative to the, uh, the pre-war period. However, that doesn't seem to have served China very well, right? Because like, you know, Liz Truss, basically before the election said that 
as soon as she's elected, she's going to designate China as an official threat to British national security. I mean, it's pretty funny, right? I mean, China's the other end of the world. She wants to basically label, you know, designate China as an official threat to British national security. The only other country that has that status, of course, is Russia. That was when Britain basically upgraded Russia to official threat when Russia invaded Ukraine. China did not invade another country. It didn't even violate the sanctions. Now it's about to get designated as a threat anyway. And Biden basically two weeks ago in his latest uh, sanctions when it comes to uh, technology uh, restrictions, export of, you know, restrictions on technology export, it was two countries on that list was China and Russia. So now if you're China, you figure, wow, you know, listen, it didn't matter <laughs> that I did not violate, you know, U.S. sanctions against Russia, right? I mean, I'm basically being put in the same box. So what are you going to do, you think? Okay. So I think it's going to be very interesting. I think actually there's no question we are already, you know, in the middle of a new Cold War. And this new Cold War has many, many dimensions, okay? For one thing, it's going to be highly inflationary. Because if for nothing else, what you're talking about going forward the next five years, 10 years, we're going to have to build two of everything. We're going to have to build two, basically, trading system. We're going to build two payment systems. You know, these countries, these blocks, that is China and Russia and maybe some other countries like, you know, Southeast Asia, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, all these countries, they're going to have to basically, they're going to, they, they may end up basically divorcing themselves from U.S., Japan, and Europe, okay? So from that point of view, it's like, well, you know, this is not going to be fun because this is tearing up globalization as we know it. And globalization was the reason why we had very low inflation where central banks were basically constantly, you know, essentially injecting liquidity in one form or another. That was so easy to make money. So this is to begin with is bad news, okay, for financial markets that we're now, on, we're now openly, okay, a geopolitical standoff. That, believe me, this war in Ukraine is not going to be over anytime soon. Okay, it's going to be a prolonged thing. It's going to be a painful thing. In fact, it could potentially ultimately lead to a breakup of the European Union, in my humble opinion, which will have very, very negative ramifications. You'll, you'll find out oil is actually a good buy here. Now, meanwhile, COVID, what did COVID really do? The, the biggest impact of COVID, the gift of COVID for someone like myself, is the fact that, you know what, people are now suffering from long COVID. They're suffering from basically, you know, essentially negative side effect associated with the vaccine. I can tell you, I have a booster. I have two booster shots. I live in Israel. And, you know, I can tell you right now, there's a class action lawsuit against the Israeli government about basically the negative side effect associated with the third vaccine. Okay. Because I can tell you, I mean, like, I don't know, my immune system is shot to pieces. As a result, I guess it rather easily much more easily than I ever did. I'm a pretty healthy person otherwise. But my point here is that this is the reason why labor participation rate has not recovered to the pre-pandemic level. I mean, this is pretty much everywhere in the world, by the way, that unemployment rate is all near all-time low because all these people who left the labor force are not coming back in a hurry. Either because they don't want to get vaccinated or that their health has taken a hit or that whatever, there's something wrong with COVID. Nobody wants to admit it because right now, as you know, if you basically even mention the word COVID pandemic, you could potentially get, uh, you know, censored even on YouTube. 
But the point here is that this is having a massive economic implication. Actually, ironically, it's interesting because by basically pushing unemployment rate to all-time low, is giving labor, you workers, first time in 20 years, a goddamn fighting chance to negotiate for higher pay. So you're talking about all of a sudden companies not going to be able to outsource to China so easily. At the same time, their workers are demanding higher pay. So what are you going to do? <laughs> and then on top of that, you know, governments are still using resorting so easily to fiscal policy. I mean, they just Europe just basically decided to basically uh, hand out $500 billion of energy stimulus. What do you think that's going to do? That just means that British household, European households, you know, as far as they're concerned, energy prices haven't gone up that much, right? Which means that they're going to spend more energy, more energy than they would otherwise, which means higher prices, tradable prices for energy. That's what it means, which means more inflation, which means more hawks central banks. You get the point. So I'm just telling you that we are living, you know, you know, sometimes in life, in the market, you understand whether you're trading a business cycle or you're trading a structural cycle. In my view, we are now in a different structural cycle. And the war in Ukraine, okay, and the longer term consequences of COVID are two that are basically putting upper pressure on inflation. And inflation is not gonna be good for financial markets, especially a market that's never traded inflation seriously for the last 20 years. So, because if we look at bonds, we've seen that they probably haven't performed as people thought, you know, normally, um, you know, yields would be going up, but I think they're the opposite. Oh, I might get that wrong. But so I guess, do you think it's just, there's a lag period to what might happen and we might go back to sort of how bonds used to behave or what's your opinion on how markets are reacting? To I think right now, I'm going to assume that basically that we have to understand that growth and inflation have a negative trade-off. Okay. In other words, that to bring down inflation, growth has to go down. Okay. But in the last 20 years, there hasn't been that negative trade-off. It's so so-called, you know, it's, it's known otherwise as the Phillips curve. You know, it was a very flat curve. So, you know, central banks can do whatever they want. But that curve has become less flat, it's become more concave. Which means that you know what? If there's going to if inflation is buoyant, that means central banks will have to kill growth to bring down inflation. So that is what we're talking about. You cannot have the lunch in the two. Okay. You you could when China was exporting deflation to the rest of the world, and you decide, you know what, we don't want China anymore. You know, so from that point of view, this is what this is going to be about. So I think, you know, I'm listen. What this means is that real rates have to go higher, real interest rates. Because ultimately, who cares about nominal interest rates? Because everything should be thought of in real terms. Right now, real yields, 10-year U.S. real yields is at what? Barely at 80 basis points. I mean, which is crazy. I mean, this is why, like, you know, Jay Powell, like last week, he was, like, getting all huffed up because he's like, well, you know, listen, I've been trying to tell you guys, meaning the market, like rates will have to go up and he cannot believe every day he wakes, he wakes up, get out of bed, look at his Bloomberg terminal. And then the market is expecting rates to go down next year. He says, well, you know, listen, the market clearly doesn't believe me. So he told the market again, you guys are idiots. Listen to what I have to say, because you know what? Because Jay Powell is looking at, you know, his financial condition index 
And that thing has been easy for the last almost two months now. It's pretty amazing. Every week has been easy. Stock market's going up, or credit spreads coming in, or that real yield's going down. So well, you know, listen, there is no way central banks today, they need the cooperation of financial markets to be able to tame inflation. Because these days, monetary policy works through, again, the stock market, the bond market, the credit market, the foreign exchange market. For monetary policy to work, for monetary tightening to work, they need to drive down the stock market so that to basically slow down consumption by destroying some wealth, if you like. They need to basically reduce you know, investment by essentially you know, increasing the borrowing costs for companies, higher credit spreads. They need to, you know, they need to make US companies, countries export more expensive so as to basically, you know, like slow down export a bit. So you need a stronger currency, high interest rates, and a lower stock market. So unless these things work in the same way the central banks do, like, you know what? They haven't tightened. This is why it's ironic. The last two months is as though interest rates have gone down. Okay. This is why, like, you know, rates are going to have to go a lot higher. That's the bottom line. So I'm not going to be here to tell you, oh, I was going to go to 5%, 6%. I hope not. But I think for me, like, you know, I think 4.5% is very, very likely. Okay. I'm talking even in the US. I'm even talking about Europe. Like the UK should go a lot higher than that. Okay. Because like people don't realize this. UK, especially UK. Okay. It's all about stagflation. UK was very prone to stagflation in the 70s. Because UK, you know, you're talking about 50% of government workers, you know, are unionized. Another basically 15% of private sector workers are unionized. You see what's happening in the summer already with the strike, basically industrial actions. I mean, this can get very hostile. Okay. Liz Truss, by the way, in my view, she has no backbone. She's talking about, well, I'm going to be Thatcher. But at the same time, she's basically, she's throwing out hundreds of billion dollars. That's only going to basically make the inflation picture worse. So, you know, you, you, you got to basically decide. Thatcher was not a populist. She was basically a fiscal conservative. But the bottom line here is what this just means that interest rates are going to go higher. Because all these central banks know, like if interest rates, if inflation doesn't come down, they're all toast. <laughs> they're seriously toast. Okay. Because there is, because for one thing, they all know the biggest problem with inflation is that it just basically will be felt much more by poor people. We all agree today, especially in the Western world, the biggest problem we face is income inequality. And inflation is only going to exacerbate that even more. So if you go into an environment in which you know, income inequality gets getting worse, there will be a revolution. I mean, I'm telling you, it's going to be a revolution in the U.S. already. And um, I can only imagine what happens, you know, if we're going to have a, you know, right now people are, you know, I'm very saddened by the passing of the queen. I think she was a great queen. I think her passing away in some sense spells the end of an era, end of a good era. Okay. Because I think, you know, she would hate to, you know, live to see what is in store. And I can't even imagine, like, I don't think trust is going to last more than two years. And then we're going to have a power labor government, which is going to bring us back to socialism. And you, you tell me if that's going to be positive for markets. But so a lot of things can go wrong. A lot of things can go wrong because people no longer think in economic terms. Okay.
So that's the issue. The people have gone away from maybe being more practical to being this ideological thinking. Exactly. I'm so glad you basically pointed that out because right now it's like, well, you know, listen, you know, trust says she wants to be like Thatcher. Right? What does that mean to be like Thatcher? Right? Thatcher and Reagan were ideologues. Now, guess what? It served them very well. It served them very well. Because you know what? At the time, the world was facing the threat of Soviet communism. It was faced with the threat of, you know, basically total labor unrest and, I don't know, like, you know, a, a backlash to capitalism and, and, uh, and entrepreneurship. So they, by being able to stand tough and, you know, fall back on the ideology, you know, they were able to basically bring things back to where they were. I mean, make the world a better place. Today, this doesn't make any sense to be ideological. You're in London. I, I love talking about it because I think it's fascinating. Think about Liz Truss, right? Only, you know, only like, what, six years ago, David Cameron went to Beijing and told the Chinese, we want to be your best friend in the West, okay? Only basically a few months ago, Boris Johnson came out and said that he's fervently cinephile. You know, it's not that, you know what, these people thought like, you know, Cameron and Boris Johnson don't understand China's agenda, whatever. Yeah, I mean, China's been a dictatorship for a long time. You know, in fact, even when Richard Nixon basically, you know, went to China, he knew what he was dealing with. But at the end of the day, you know, for Cameron, for Boris Johnson, perhaps they were thinking, oh, well, you know, listen, at the end of the day, I'm elected prime minister to serve the best interests of my own people, British people. You know, Boris Johnson, he said, well, I've got another EU. i got to basically find another market to export to. Naturally, China being the second largest economy in the world is the place to go. I mean, to me, it's pretty amazing now looking back. I said, well, for a while, I didn't understand how this trust managed to win. Okay. Now I think I understand. Because you know what? Rishi Sunak, he lost because, if you recall, back in July, it was discovered that when he was chancellor, he wanted to... Okay, make London the market of choice for Chinese businesses. That's 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 what really brought him down. Because what's happening in the UK is because you know the Labour Party has decided to be to make itself completely unelectable, the whole Conservative Party is now moving towards the left, the right. Essentially, especially, you know, now you know the European Study Group, the far right, okay which is, is now basically the power broker. Who do you think they backed? <laughs> Liz Truss. She wants to, she was more hawkish on Russia, okay, than even Boris Johnson. She was more hawkish than Russia than Biden, actually. It's pretty amazing, right? She was the first one to say, oh, well, we have to basically throw Russia out of the entirety of Ukraine, right? She had no, no interest in talking to the Russians. She's the one who wants to designate China as, a, as, a, as an official threat to British national security. And she's the architect of basically this bill passing through British Parliament that will essentially, you know, unilaterally change the Northern Ireland Protocol, which will completely like blow up the basically, you know, the, uh, the whatever agreement that Britain basically signed getting out of the EU. Okay. So, like, if you tell me that's not ideological, I don't know what it is. Like, you know, so you get out of the, you, you get out of the EU, Brexit, and now you are burning your bridge with the EU. You want to basically burn your bridge with China. And <laughs> I don't know, like, does basically Liz Trust really think that she can reinvent Britain just by exporting some more stuff to Australia and New Zealand? 
I mean, come on. Okay. So this is what I'm saying. At the end of the day, I believe, you know, politicians, political leaders, they're elected to serve the best interests of their people. Our job is to basically bring prosperity to the British people. Okay. And not to basically play, you know, this moral, whatever she does, I don't know. Whatever it is, that is a dangerous thing. But the world is moving in that direction. And that's what scares me. But of course, it creates tremendous trading opportunity. Now, it just means that it's not a buy to, it's not a basically buy to whole environment. If you think that, then you're crazy. Okay. It's now understanding the pressure points. When are they going to do this? When are they going to do that? And trying to basically take advantage of the volatility that's created by the sort of the, uh, the ideological clashes that are, that are basically going on in the world. That's getting worse. Yeah. So is that your goal for Unbound? You're trying to sort of maybe help people go away from that ideological thinking to more practical and actually looking at what's happening in the world? I mean, honestly, yes. Because I, you know, I love the Brits. I mean, I guess I love Britain of yesterday. You know, I think about, you know, I, when I think about the British people, I think they're some of the most talented. If they're probably the most talented people in the world. I mean, in terms of how much they've accomplished, how much they've shaped our world. Okay. I mean, you don't even have to like the British. Okay. To basically recognize that, you know, the world would not have been the same without their contributions. And I think if I think about the greatest contributions, why are basically all these British thinkers, British writers, British whatever, scientists, really shape the world? Because you know what? The Brits are not exactly ideological. They're inquisitive and independent-minded people. They are prepared to think out of the box. And foremost, they're pragmatists. They're pragmatists. This is why, you know, there was, there, Britain has basically constitutional... <laughs> Parliament before France did, even without a goddamn bloody, basically, French Revolution. Because the Brits are pragmatic. We need, the world needs pragmatism more than ever right now. And unfortunately, you know, and pragmatism that are predicated on facts, okay? Because right now, too many people have opinions that are completely uninformed by facts. And that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, in my little way, I want to help move the needle because on Wall Street, you know what? One thing I learned on Wall Street is that unless your view is based on facts, you are destined <laughs> to be pushed aside and basically get run over, basically, because Wall Street doesn't care about your politics. It doesn't care about your opinions. If, it's, if you're not right over time, who cares if you got a PhD from Harvard, you worked at whatever, Okay. At the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters. So what I want to do is to bring this non-ideological approach to looking at facts and trying to basically have people draw conclusions. And then we need to have debates that are based on facts. And what I'm hoping to help people do is why we engage in this debate. You know what? I'm going to help you basically make some money too. <laughs> so to make it worthwhile. So that is basically the cherry on the pudding. Yeah, perfect. Makes sense. So, David, thank you so much for your time today. Um, uh, I guess my last question is: Is that the message you want people to to listeners to take away, or is there another message that you'd like them to take away? I think I think the, I think the main message here is that the world is changing, and is changing not in a good way. And you have to think about how this is going to affect your life. I mean, I can help you think about what this means to your investment. But you also have to think in terms of, you know what? So, like, 
you know, where should I live? <laughs> okay. And what kind of education should I get? You know, you know, and uh, should I buy a house or not buy a house? You know, like, you know, should I, you know, like I was talking to someone today from London who just recently moved to Canada, you know, thought it was a great move. Okay. Career move. I don't know. But the point here is that the way the world is undergoing this change is going to basically have a huge impact in every aspect of our lives. So what I'm trying to do is trying to help people think about, okay, the world, whether you are interested in economics, politics or not, to the extent that what's going to happen is going to have a direct impact in your life. You better basically figure it out sooner rather than later. Yeah, and that's what I want to do. Yeah, perfect, sir. I think that's the great message to take away. So, David, thanks again. Um, you know, we've talked about your website, what you do. Also, you've got a YouTube channel on Twitter. Are those the best places to find you, or is there anywhere else? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, David, one bound, you know, it's free. So, you know, like on YouTube. So, you know, you can start there. And if you, if I get you interested, you can always sign up for my blog, which is very, very inexpensive because I want to basically make it affordable for everybody. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great uh, way to do it. So, I'll put that all in the description below for you. But, uh, David, thanks again. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.